This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. A professor of chemistry goes on a hike. Sounds like the start of a joke, but it is not. Ethan Glogley is no joke. A lifelong hiker, a wonderful professor of chemistry at Santa Monica College, and now an author of a fantastic book, The Trail. Ethan's travels along the John Muir Trail and his love of hiking come through in his novel. Our modern world has become so busy and so harried that we really need time as human beings to, to stop and reflect on life. And backpacking and, and hiking give you that time. You're in nature, you're breathing that healthy air, you're surrounded by woods and, you know, by, by the majesty of nature. It's, it's really a time out that, that we as humans need to take from time to time to just refocus ourselves. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from Emmy winners, newspaper writers, and actor Rodney Allen Ripley. Look, Rodney, look what we got for you. And I'm like, that's for me? They were like, that's yours. I said, for me? They were like, yeah, have it, it's yours. And I was like, this is a trick. I'm like, well, hey, he gave me the burger. And I sit down and I tear into this burger and they just die laughing. And they said, get his mother in here. So they call my mom to the door. And Miss Rippy, can you please come in? And my mom's like, oh my God, what now? Why are they calling me into the room? What has he done? Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break for the sponsor before diving into my conversation with Ethan Glogley. Ethan, how are you today? Very well. Thank, thank you for having me, Matt. Absolutely. Um, I am so glad we hooked up and I was able to find you. Your, your life story, your passion for hiking, and your new book, are a wonderful threesome to be with and and be a part of. So I'm glad that we were able to hook up and do this. Thank you. What? Okay, so tell me this because it's always interesting on the backstory. How does a young man like you, and I'm assuming you found this as a young man, find hiking? What led you to hiking? Right, that's a that's a great question, Matt. Um, when when I was a kid, my parents did some camping and stuff. So I did car camping growing up. Okay. But if you had asked me as a kid, would I ever want to take a backpacking trip or a hike? I would have said no. Uh, but when I was 13, I took a bike tour of Vermont and New Hampshire, and we climbed a couple of mountains. We climbed Mount Washington, and I, I really enjoyed it. When I moved out to California for graduate school, I took a trip to Yosemite Valley, and that was probably the bug. That just blew me away. The, the cliffs, the majesty of Yosemite, the waterfalls, I, I just, it was amazing. I mean, I, I took a, a disaster of a day hike there. We, we didn't bring <laughs> enough water, and we, we tried to get up Yosemite Falls, and we, we ran out of food and water a third of the way up and had to beg people for water. It was so hot. <laughs> oh, God. See, I, 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 didn't, I didn't realize that altitude was an issue, that, you know, it was a three-mile walk. So I, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't look at the fact that it was a 3,000-foot climb. So, you know, I hadn't thought about that. But that trip to Yosemite just blew me away. And 
I decided I wanted to come back, backpack, climb Half Dome, and just check it all out. So I bought myself a backpack at REI. I got a book backpacking one step at a time, now now kind of a classic. And I went into Yosemite with a friend, and, and we took a, a seven-day backpacking trip through Yosemite, and I loved it. I absolutely fell in love with it, um, and I, I've been backpacking since. Was... So did you grow up on the East Coast? Yeah, I, 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 I grew up in Connecticut. Okay, so what's your biggest, like, mountain ranges that you would be hiking back there, altitude-wise? Probably the White Mountains, and, and the tallest of them would be Washington at a little over 6,000 feet. Oh, yeah, so you're talking, when you come out to the Sierras, it's a huge difference. It is and it isn't. Um, in terms of altitude, it is in the sense that in the Sierra, you're up at, well, you, you can get up to 14.5 in the Sierra, up on Whitney. But on the Muir Trail, about a third of it is over 10,000 feet. So it, wow. it's pretty serious altitude, and you definitely feel it. If, if you've been up to Tahoe or something, you know that the first couple of days you're you're really kind of huffing it. You're, it takes a while to adjust. And I, I get altitude sickness. I, I get it badly sometimes. Last year, I, I was out with my son doing the Muir Trail, and I got sick up on Forrester Pass, you know, up around around 13,000. So, yeah, it, it hits you in a bad way. But the thing about the East Coast is, you're starting when you're on the West coast, you're starting typically at about seven and then you're going up to 10 or 12. Right. On the East coast, you're starting a lot closer to zero. So the climbs are still similar. Don't, don't ever think that, Oh yeah, I've been up to 10,006 is an easy thing. No, um, climbing some of those East coast peaks is pretty arduous, but you're not getting up to elevations where the breathing is, is particularly difficult. Right. But, you know, like you said, starting at sea level and going to 6,000, that could be grueling. Yes, it's, it's a huge elevation change. Um, and any climb where you're going over a few thousand feet of elevation gain is, is, is tough. <laughs> what, so what time of the year was that first hike to Yosemite? Were you in the summer, spring, winter? When you I, were- it probably was around July. I, I, I mean, it was a long, I was in my 20s, but I okay. I'd, I'd bet you it was July and, <laughs> and the water was pouring and the trees were blooming and everything was just, just fantastic. And all the tourists are there. Everybody's in town. So yes. the place is hopping. You show up, fall in love with this beautiful thing. Instead of going 180 and going like, I'm never coming back. This is the worst thing ever. I almost died up here. So it's amazing that it caught your spirit. Oh yeah. No, I I've been to Yosemite probably several times a year since, since coming out to California. Wow. It's, it's just so, so you, you've been, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh yes. Yeah. It's beautiful. And it's beautiful at all the seasons. It's stunning. And, and the thing about Yosemite is most people only see the Valley or just the roads, but so much more of Yosemite is in, you know, it's, it's a huge park but all people see are those little tiny tracks sort of through the middle of it. They, they never get out in the back country and the back country is, is so much larger and, and has so many grand places that, that are just unbelievable. I saw, I 
doing my research for this, that if you just stay on the road and go from point to point, that's all little things on a map that are interesting. You only see 5% of the park. Like that's I it. I, I think even less. Right. I like, mean, maybe, maybe what you can see from the car. Yeah. Right? From the car, you're in the back seat with mom and dad and the, you know, Winnebago, but yeah, you, you get off that trail. It's a totally different park. Yes. Yes. It's just gorgeous. There's, there, there's a grand Canyon of the Tuolumne, <laughs> which is just amazing. I, I took my kids down there one summer and there's water wheel falls o- over there where they're, they're tumbling in these wheels I, there, there's so much stuff in Yosemite. And of course the Muir trail starts in Yosemite. So that's very dear to me and very connected to my book. Right now. Why, why do you think hiking hooked you? What was the actual like Genesis of it? Was it just the outdoors being with friends, maybe being alone? What was it? Well, that's a, that's a great question. There's, there's a piece to hiking. There's a letting go of stress and, and the things of society that happens, particularly in a backpacking trip where you don't have to be back home. You don't have to get back for a meeting or something the next day where you're just free and you don't have cell phone reception. Typically you, you don't have any of the interruptions of society and so your mind relaxes and, and you you become part of your surroundings. Um, and you're, you're just able to relax in a way that you're not able to do, you know, with all the interruptions of daily life and daily living. And that, that sense of blending into nature, being one with your surroundings, and just able to reflect on life, on yourself, that sense of peace is so, we're so missing that in our modern world. Our, our modern world has become so busy and so harried that we really need time as human beings to, to stop and reflect on life. And backpacking and, and hiking give you that time you're in nature, you're breathing that healthy air, you're surrounded by woods and, you know, by, by the majesty of nature. It's, it's really a time out that, that we as humans need to take from time to time to just refocus ourselves and, 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 you know, I, I, it's hard to express, right. but it's, it's a very, very important thing. And I, I can't stress it enough. It's it's what draws me back time and time again. Yeah. Now you touched on something that was pretty interesting and I, I want to hit on. You said cell reception. When you started hiking, there were no phones. Like right. nobody had, no, there might've been a military sat phone, but there nobody was wandering around trying to look up into the air, trying to get reception from a mountaintop. It's interesting how technology has very much helped hiking with GPS and the ability to mapping and find, keep on trails. And then people still want to go out and they can't put that damn thing down. And, and hiking in some of these places allows that because there is no reception. Yes. You, you separate. And in, in the old days, in the eighties or so, you're right. There were no phones. And I've been shocked, absolutely shocked when I look at my gear 
you know, we, as backpackers, we weigh all our gear because weight is very important. And I found I have about a pound and a half, almost two pounds of electronics with me. And I just think about the eighties. I'm like, I never had this many electronics. Of course, in the eighties and nineties, I had heavier camera gear. So my camera would have made up that, that difference. And some of the electronics are pretty nice to have. Like there's a, a device called the inReach, which if you get into trouble, you can push a button and, you know, they'll send a helicopter to, to get you. And we didn't have that in the 80s and 90s. If you got in trouble, you had to find your way out or, or get help. There really was no, there, there was no push a button and call rescue. So some of the electronics are pretty nice. But it's really nice to get away from from the phones, and they've become so you know ubiquitous in our lives that being being able to just disconnect a little is is really really refreshing. But even even back in the eighties and nineties, you know, you'd get phone calls, you know, on a landline. You you'd have things to do, and just being able to step away from all that. And be in nature was just hugely regenerative. It, it was, it, it, it's really refreshing. I, you know, when I started backpacking, I was working on my PhD and you can imagine I had tons of stuff in my head and being able to just walk away and be in nature just helped me process all those things in a way that you, you just can't do in the city. Right. And okay. So you just said your PhD, you know, for, people that you're uh, a professor and you teach chemistry, correct? Yes. So I, I found that stunning that your career really does lend you to hiking because it gives you your summers off so you can go and be adventurous like the guys who, who did the trail, right? Weren't the original people professors or teachers and that was their summer kind of hobby was discovering the John Muir? Uh, two two of the major figures were uh, Theodore Solomons was not a professor, but he he really wasn't employed. So <laughs> much, much to his mother's chagrin, he just went out there and, you know, he kind of saved up and, and went out. Uh, but he did kind of miscellaneous jobs. But the the other major figures, uh, Bolton Brown was an art professor at Stanford. And he he and then later he and his wife would spend their their summers in the Sierra and J.N. LeCant uh, was a professor of mechanical engineering. And again, he went out and made most of the maps of this territory, eventually became uh, president of the Sierra Club after Muir. And he, his summer project was the Sierra. He, he'd take a mule and go out for, for the summer. <laughs> Just grab your local mule, go out with your animal. So do you, does that help you though, being a professor, giving you your summers? Yes. Oh yes. Oh yes. It, it's. It, I mean, if you were an accountant from nine to five, you wouldn't have a chance, right? You're just. Well, when I when I was young, my 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 grandparents, my mother's parents, were both in academia, and they would take summer trips to Europe. Uh, mind you, you had to take a, a ship in those days, of course. Right. And. You know, they, they'd spend two months on these these amazing journeys, and I thought to myself, that's the career path I want to be in. I want to be in academia. I want to have my time to explore the world. 
I, I just, you know, I saw how others were working with these intense schedules and, you know, a week or two of vacation max. And I, I wanted no part of that. And I, I also love teaching. I mean, I, I've got to say, I love teaching. So teaching in, in college was a perfect fit for me. And how did you discover or fall in love with chemistry? That was a long circuitous path when I was in <laughs> like a like a trail. In, it is, yeah. When when I was in college, I wanted to major in computer science, and I I still enjoy computer science. But I started asking a bunch of philosophical questions about what is life and so forth. I went into psychology, but I found they didn't really know. So I thought, well, okay, I'll study biology. I'll try to figure out the brain, but. The biologists didn't really have it. And I, I went into chemistry because that seemed even more fundamental. And I'd, I'd probably have been a physics major after that. But my father said, no, you got to graduate in four years. You know, that, <laughs> that's it. So I, I graduated in chemistry and then just like, you know, like I predicted, I went on to study physical chemistry. So I mixed physics and chemistry and did a, did a degree in that. I'll show you dad. <laughs> no, no, I, that something for your listeners is in, in America anyway, graduate school, they'll, they'll pay you to go if you're in science. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't have to pay for college if, if you go into to graduate school. So when I, when I found that out, I'm, I, I'm like, okay, where do I sign up more? more school and free, you know, cause I, I love, I love being in school. I love learning things. Right. Ethan, do you take chemistry and because hiking does have a lot of it blended in with altitude, temperature and all the things that kind of are kind of work into chemistry or what was sorry, work into hiking? Not consciously, but certainly I do. Uh, when I think about altitude and air pressure, of course, all right. You know, all, all the barometric distribution laws and all, you know, all the stuff from physics and chemistry come into my head, mm-hmm. but I'm not dragging chemistry out there. When I'm in the woods, it's much more of a meditative state. And it, it's only when I start to think about some question, like why do the trees get so short up here that the chemistry comes back? Right. <laughs> Can't get away from it. No, it's, it's everywhere. Tell me the, because I love that you've been hiking for so long. You've seen a major change that like we touched on, which is cameras. How has technology, whether it's boots, bags, you know, uh, all the things that are either bigger, lighter, stronger, better straps. Has that been something that's, uh, you know, been big change for you as a hiker? Subtle, subtle, small changes. You touched on the electronics. That's probably the most visible change. Um, you know, you've got, like you said, GPS now, and GPS is cuts both ways. I, I've met people stranded in the wilderness crying because they didn't know where they were half a mile from a trail because their their iPhone had broken and they had never thought to look at a map or or to wonder where they are. They're they're just following that little right. lip on the phone, and so you know it can be a disaster if if you if you don't bring a real map and you don't know the big picture of where you are, GPS can cut both ways, but it's really convenient, particularly in snow. If you're, if you find yourself in early season and you're navigating a snow field, 
you can't see the trail. And inevitably, inevitably, the trail will take a 90 degree turn in the snow. It always does. And so if you're just blindly going forward, you're going to lose the trail. But if you've got the GPS, you can you can look at it and say, ah, it turns right here, you know, and follow it which is a lot harder to do with the paper map, you know, with the tri with a compass and a paper map, you can triangulate. And in the old days, we all knew how to do that for most of us. Right. But nowadays who does that? You know, it's, it's quite rare. So you just, you pull out the phone and you follow it and being able to call for rescue. These, these are huge changes. Uh, like you allude to with the cameras, Oh my God, the the weight of a camera has changed, right? We don't have film anymore. Yeah. So you can see your picture instantly. And I've I'm carrying what is it, a Sony RX 106. You know, they're so technical sounding, but it it's a little less than a pound and it's got a super zoom lens. And I, I can do absolutely everything with that little camera that I think a three or four pound uh, Nikon would have done for me years ago. And, and that doesn't include the lenses and everything else you needed. And then with film, you got to carry all that film. So camera gear has gotten much more powerful and much lighter. So that's been a big change and backpacks and tents. They've got new fabric. Now that the DCF fabric, right which is what, you know, they were using as sales in the America's Cup. The the backpacking manufacturers have gone and run with this. And you can get a tent now that, that's about a pound. I mean, pound, pound and a half, which you could never do, you, you know, back then. Sleeping bags now, you, you can get a pound and a half sleeping bag that goes down to, you know, minus, minus eight, minus nine degrees centigrade. So... I, just the weight of equipment and the the ultralight backpacks. This has changed. Back when I started, I I was I mean that first trip I was way overweight, <laughs> but you know the first trip I I think I was carrying about seventy five pounds on my oh, back. Ethan. No, oh, Ethan! No, I was it was crazy. But I mean I I learned. But sure, I was still, sure I was still carrying forty fifty pounds um, up until recently and. Now my backpack's probably 20 pounds. So for me, that is a huge, huge shift. And then there've been other things too, right? Trekking poles have become carbon fiber and right. you know, pe- people now are into trail runners instead of boots. So there's a lot of innovation aimed at getting the weight of the pack down. Right. The clothes, the quality of the clothes have totally changed. Yep. Yep. You know, yep. from, what the jacket is to the pants, to the socks, all that's changed. I mean, you look yep. at it and it used to be like, make sure you got a wool jacket. Like now, you know, it's, you never bring wool. Now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> now you have all this other stuff that just, it's layered and it's beautiful and it's light and it breathes. It's totally changed. Yep. Yep. And, and you look at the early explorers of the 1800s and they're all canvas tents and hand sewn sleeping bags and four by five box cameras. I mean, they, there's a reason they had a mule, right? Right. Or two. I mean, good yep. Lord. Yeah. And just the, the food aspect of what you used to have to bring out, whether it was a skillet, wood and what everything and now it's like oh i've got my jet burner and i light that baby up put in some water and i'm good to go yeah that's true too stove technology has improved tremendously 
So, you know, starting, I think, with the Primus on, we, we've gotten these very lightweight stoves that you can bring. And that's, that's also huge. Everything towards weight, everything towards reducing the weight of equipment. Um, it, it's, there's been a lot of innovation, even, even my tent, you know, I've, I've just picked up, uh, what is it? A Durston X mid, which sets up with your trekking poles. So you don't even carry poles anymore. You just take your, your carbon fiber poles and set this thing up. Wow. Why didn't you think of that? (laughs) That would have been brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But see poles, am I correct? Poles were not very popular in the eighties. No, I, I, I think I was carrying a big stick back then. Um, but yeah, trekking poles have only recently kind of come into their own, but on an, on a trail like the Muir trail, uh, they're almost essential. There's just so much up and down that, that you really, really want some stabilization. Uh, and as, as I get older, my knees need it. So I, (laughs) Hey, thank you. I love trekking poles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your your knees. Uh, thank you every time you go out and you bring those things along. I'm sure. Yep. What? Okay, so let's do a quick like do and don't for beginner hikers because we both live in the beautiful part of Southern California where there's lots of available day hikes or even just an overnighter. So, what kind of advice is the master hiker that you are? would you give to somebody like top five things to do and don't do? Cause I always think the don't do is so important because either they under prepare or over prepare for, for a day hike. Yeah. Let's just say a day hike. Okay. For, for a day hike, I'd say the most essential things are sunscreen in, in Southern California. Don't, don't forget that maybe a hat and some sunglasses And then you want to bring proper clothing because people don't realize it. But as you go up, say, up a mountain or into the hills, it can get cold. It it can rain, not often down here, but it can rain. So you want a windbreaker. You want a couple of layers. You want good footwear. And most importantly, you want someone to be aware of where you're going. You want to call some friend and say, hey. I'm going to climb Mount Baldy today. I should be back at around five or six. I'll give you a call to check in. And if I don't, here's who to call. Because there there have been so many cases of people who go off on on a day hike and they slip or, or have some accident. No one knows they're out there. And unless another hiker comes along, you're you're in trouble. So always have somebody who knows where you're going and and what you're up to and that you check in with. That's that's really, really uh, critical. And maybe have enough food and water in your pack so that if you did get stuck out there, maybe a flashlight, you know, if you did get stuck out, you would have enough stuff to, to survive. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's say that person's going on an overnighter one day. What should they, same thing, very similar. What should they take and do and don't do? Because now we're talking about we're spending the night. Right. Well, so now now we've got a whole different list of equipment, right? So in addition to your basic needs, your food and water and, and stuff, now you've got to have a shelter of some kind. You're going to need a sleeping bag, a backpack, something a little more sturdy, and again, a plan. You, you'll want to contact someone and let them know where you're going and all that. 
But aside from the other gear that you need and then the additional food and stove and you'll probably need a wilderness permit or maybe a fire permit, aside from all that, it's pretty much the same story. You want to have somebody who's aware of where you're at and you want to have all the equipment to, to survive and get through. And I would say on an overnight, it's always good to have one extra meal, right? Just right. just in case something goes wrong and you you don't get back when you, you plan, it's always good to have a little more food and maybe a few more layers. At, at night, it can get a lot colder than people think. So yeah. a few more layers. And, and that's something people don't realize when they're buying sleeping bags, for example, sleeping bags are rated for survival, not for comfort. So if, if a sleeping bag says, you know, it's a 20 degree bag, uh, that doesn't mean you're going to be comfortable at 20 degrees. That, that means you're just going to be surviving at 20 degrees. So it's always good to get a bag that goes a lot lower than you expect. Mm-hmm. I think also a lot of people forget is to try it out before you go, put the tent up in the backyard, try out the sleeping bag, put out the inflatable mattress. Don't try to figure it out at eight o'clock at night when it's completely dark and you've only got a headlamp and you're trying to share it with your buddy. Cause he forgot absolutely, his. <laughs> absolutely. Matt. That, that's great advice. And that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, and, and particularly the try it on. If, if you're packing a backpack for the first time, you want to try it on and walk around with it. You want to make sure it fits. You want to know how to adjust it. You want to know how to pack it. So I, I, I think that's a great, great advice. Yeah. Try your, try your gear out at home. And like you're saying on, on a one day, two day trip, if you're planning a longer trip, you know, 10 days or a month or something, you want to do a series of one or two day trips so that you know how your gear functions, you know what you need, you know what you like. If your backpack isn't fitting quite right, you know, this kind of thing, you want to find that out on a, on a weekend trip. Yeah. Going through Santa Monica mountains, not going over the Sierras going, oopsie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I always would have my boys, whatever my oldest would hike a lot. And I'd tell them, stay the night in the backyard, put up the tent in the backyard, put up everything. And if it works in the backyard, then you'll be good when you go out to death Valley or something, but don't ever try to figure it out just because the guy at REI told you it's an easy put up. That's never how it goes. I know people too, who'll get their, their sprinkler out and they'll, they'll simulate rain so they can see what it's like in the rain and so forth. Right. They they really test their stuff. Well, I'm sure if you, you've done this, so much i'm sure you've been through horrible wind which people don't realize rain cold like all of a sudden a storm comes out of nowhere and you see it and it's coming up and over the hill and you're like we're gonna lose 40 degrees real quick people don't don't realize when you're out there it comes Right. And, and those are the times you want to be flexible. So on a long trip, you want some flexibility. If I saw a massive storm coming, I'd look for a place to shelter. I might even put up my tent and, you know, hunk down for a couple of hours rather than sit outside and get soaked. It, it kind of depends. And let's not forget bugs. Well, <laughs> let's not yes, forget I forgot Mother Nature's little friends. You know, that, that chapter in my book with the mosquitoes I wrote, Trapped in a Tent in Oregon, by mosquitoes, I'd, I'd never, 
ever encountered worse mosquitoes on trail than when I was doing the Oregon PCT uh, up around Christie Springs. It was miserable. And I was sitting in the tent, nothing to do. And I'm like, I'm going to write this up for the book I'm working on. So I, I wrote it up as a, a scene. <laughs> but if you're going through Oregon or other places where mosquitoes are bad, a head net. And if in Oregon, I had a body net and I was the envy of everyone on trail. I had one of those full on body net, head net suits and people were looking at me and they were jealous. I mean, they were like, where did you get that? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I got it with experience. That's where I got it. (laughs) (laughs) I read online about Oregon. Yeah. But I mean, you know, know, know the season, know the bugs, know the conditions you're getting into. If, if you're going to be in snow or something, you've got to be prepared for it. Right. Yeah. Everybody gets worried when they're hiking about the bear, but it's the little things that get you like those mosquitoes. You're, they're yeah. coming out. Actually the squirrels and the oh. chipmunks are much more thieves. Serious thieves. The That's right. Yes. yes. <laughs> you, you remember the scene in the book. That, yeah. That, that's based on a real scene. Um, my my friend's pack was assaulted by by a squirrel and <laughs> assaulted. It's it, like <laughs> yeah, no, they're they're vicious. I, the bears, they're big chickens, but the squirrels and the chipmunks will chew through your pack in a second. Right. So you've got to and the marmots, you've got to be really really careful of that. But yeah, it's it's the little things that get you, not not the big things. You you compromise on your sleeping pad because it's a little lighter, and then you can't sleep. You know that that's that kind of mistake will will haunt you. All right, so let's talk about it. We 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 mentioned a little bit. Let's talk about the book, the trail. Where does a professor, a hiker, decide I'm going to put together a novel, right? And, and maybe because you're a professor. Have you already written some books for education and this was kind of like a, an easy step for you? Well, it wasn't an easy step. I, I do have another book. I have a chemistry textbook I was a co-author on. Okay. And I sort of cut my teeth writing on that and I, I did fall in love with writing. But Is that a great read too? Should I look into getting that audio book? The chemistry? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> audio book. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll link that in the podcast. So if your uh, if your book sales fly up on the chemistry book, you'll know why. There we go. Um, yeah, I, Amazon's I, bestseller all of a sudden. It, it's it's good though if you're suffering from insomnia, right? <laughs> <laughs> you just read a chapter each night before bed. Right, boom, out like a light. Yeah. So how do um, we get there? I mean, that's it's a beautiful book. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so in 2016, you know, I've been backpacking some 30 years, but I'd never hiked the entire John Muir Trail. I'd done sections of it. Okay. 2016, I was turning 50, and I decided this summer I'm going to hike the Muir Trail. So I, I looked for people to go with me, and nobody had a month to do the John Muir Trail. It, it, you know, most people don't get a month off. But my friend Joey said he could do two weeks and my wife could do two weeks. So we arranged a swap and midway, uh, my wife rode in with our resupply on horseback and Joey rode out on the horse she came in on. So, you know, I I spent an entire month in the wilderness and, and walked the length of the John Muir Trail as a through hiker for the first time. And 
I was blown away. It was such a different experience from weekend trips or even five or 10 day trips, which I'd done. Uh, The people I met, the scenery up there, and just being in the woods that long, being out in nature really, really affected me. And when I came back, I could not get the trail out of my head. I, I, every day, you know, my wife and I went for this massage and as I was lying there day after day was playing through my head, I could not get it out of my head. And I was telling people at work about this and we scheduled the lecture and I was going to talk about the Muir trail. And of course, as a professor, I started researching the history and the background and I was really excited about this lecture and it got canceled. We got some important, famous speaker at the, the college who needed that time slot. And so I got booted. And it was the most fortuitous canceling ever. Because I was sitting there going, I have enough material for a book. This is so interesting. I want to share this. And so that was the genesis of the book. I, I realized I want to share all this history and background and my experience And I couldn't do a history book because, you know, who would read the history of the John Muir Trail, right? Right. There'd be five or six people in line for that book. And I I happen to know them all. So, (laughs) you know, I, I decided I wanted to put it as a novel. I could weave in my other years of hiking experience and stories. I could make it more attractive. But sort of as a background theme, I, I could weave in the history and sort of the origins of the John Muir Trail. And so that's that's how the project got started. And it took me five years to go from conception to to having a book. But it it was a very happy five years. I I, I loved writing the book. Did you sit here with the structure and writing going, okay, I'm going to make it little pieces of my hiking, you know, experiences and merge them into these two characters or was it going to be straight fiction? And then what happened happened with that. I had an overall structure. I wanted a young guy, you know, Gil, right. Although, yeah, I wanted a young guy and sort of a mentor who became Sid uh, hiking together. I wanted the young guy inexperienced. I wanted him never to have hiked before because there are so many good stories you can bring in and you can have so much fun with a character who has never hiked, right? That, that first day on trail, I, I call it the suffering of Bill, where he goes through every mistake and problem you can imagine as a beginning backpacker from, you know, his pack not fitting to not knowing how to set up his tent. He brings the wrong sleeping bag, the wrong food. I mean, he, he goes through it all. And anyone who's backpacked will know, you know, they'll, they'll have been through all those things mm-hmm. and it's, it's very realistic, but you know, it's also fun. So I, I wanted a young guy who didn't really, he wasn't really into backpacking and a mentor who could talk about the history of the trail. And so that was part of the framework. I hadn't worked out the entire story when I began. And when I began, I just wrote, different scenes as they came to me, like that scene with the mosquitoes when I was in origin or origin Oregon. <laughs> so I, I just wrote different scenes as they came to me. And then I started weaving them together. Some of them I had to move around a little bit. 
and I fit them into this framework. And, and the 28 day framework was the hike that I had taken on the JMT in 2016. So each of those campsites, except one, which I, I moved for dramatic purposes, each of those campsites, each of those hikes was exactly what I had walked in 2016. And so it was very easy to write the descriptions. And then when I finished the book, well, finished, when I when I got through my my first edits and I had, you know, it was pretty close, I went back and started rewalking the trail so that I could check the vistas and check the scenery and make sure everything was authentic because hikers, they really care about authenticity. And I want, I want someone who reads this book to be able to do it on trail, to be able to go from point to point and say, wow, this description really is the way it looks. So even though it's a novel, every detail in that book is authentic. It's really been checked. In fact, I've, I've done the trail four times, a pro, you know, plus or minus right. since that 2016 hike, two through hikes, in order to check the details along the way and the vistas and the scenery. So I, I really cared about authenticity. Well, you nailed it. Uh, I've been on parts of that trail. I've never done the whole thing, but I, I felt like I was there. Parts that you talked about, I've been there. I was there. Like I, everything which, which from parts, which parts did you do? Lots of parts uh, near Mammoth, and then uh, out, coming out of Lone Pine out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just like you could close your eyes and just picture those lakes, those trees, the wind, everything you kind of discussed as that day goes on for them and he's getting a little better and how Sid's recalling stuff. Like it was so interesting to have like close your eyes and be like, I remember that as a teenager. I remember that going there and doing that and fishing that. And my grandfather discussing it and my uncle, they all grew up in the Sierras fishing all the time. So it was, it was a really good spot on of that trail. And I've, and another former guest I've had on this podcast, John Benton did that trail probably around the same time you, I think it was 15 or 16. He did that trail. You guys might've passed each other. And I reached out to him doing the, before this. And he said, yeah, that that's, that's the trail. It's grueling. That is the trail. Nice. Yeah. I love the, every chapter starting with altitude. Cause it really set you up to, Oh boy, this kid's got a long day ahead of him. A long yeah. day. <laughs> You can see what he's going to do, and and you you listen to the audiobook. Yes, but there's a there's a PDF that comes with it, and there are illustrations by Jeremy Ashcroft, who's a, a famous mountain illustrator, uh, of each day's walk. So you can see in 3D what it looks like and what they're getting into each day. So it's it, if if you look at the PDFs, you can see that. So visually, you can see the mountains too. But you're right. Just the altitude changes are crazy on the JMT. You're looking at sometimes you gain and lose 3,000 feet in a day, you know, and that's that's no joke, especially up there above 10,000 feet. Yeah, I felt for Gil on those days where he's like, we're walking up and losing altitude. Like, how is that possible? <laughs> right. You remember the first day where, you know, he's calculating, that's about two Empire State, State buildings, you know? Yeah. <laughs> 
He's like, did I do the math wrong? Yeah, I, this is not right. Yeah. Have, it, have we even climbed one Empire State Building yet? You know. I know. His first couple of days of that book, I thought, and he, he talks about how he's trying to get an out in the book. I felt for the kid. Like, it's just it, like you just, you set himself up for misery and everything he did wrong. You nailed right. it. And I'm sure a lot of that is your experience early on and then the people you've come across hearing their stories going, oh, you're going to be, this is going to be an easy setup for pain those first several days. Yeah. Well, and, and I think a lot of people give up on backpacking because they make those mistakes and they suffer and, and they just never find the joy in it. If you're, if you're carrying too much weight and you bring the wrong equipment, it, it can be pretty miserable. So I, I think for anyone who's looking to try backpacking, like you were saying earlier, do a short trip, do something easy, get used to your equipment, make sure you've got the right stuff before you set off on something like this. I'd, I'd never tell anyone to do the JMT as a, a first trip. No, no. You'll lose a friend and a, maybe a person. I mean, that's just... Exactly. I, go out to, you know, the Santa Monica Mountains. Go out to Saddleback. Do a small one for a couple hours in. People don't realize just, you know, you can't just grab a pair of running shoes and just go for it. You've got to be prepared. I think the biggest mistake people make, and you'll agree 100%, water. People absolutely underprepare, and you talk about it in the book, the necessary water, and people always don't bring enough. Yeah, yeah. No, Gil, Gil runs out of water twice, and it's it's a huge problem. If if you run out of water out there, oh, my God, you, you suffer. And it can be deadly, but even in the short term, it, it it's horrible. There was one time I was coming out of, uh, out of Iva Bell. I was going back to Red's Meadow and there's this big cliff. It's, I don't know, seven, 800 feet high. And I crossed a river and I'm thinking, do I have enough water? It's a pretty hot day. And I looked down and I got half a bottle and I'm like, yeah, I'll be okay. I don't want to stop. So I start up this cliff and it's full on sun and I'm climbing and climbing and halfway up my water is gone. And I'm an experienced hiker. I should have known, but I'm suffering. And by the time I got to the top of that cliff, I was just dying. I was like, you know, and I'm like any water and I, I'm walking and walking and I'm like, where's the water? And I'm so thirsty. And I come to this little muddy trickle in the ground and I'm just like, I've got to have this. And I, I pull out my bandana and I start soaking it and, you know, you you squeeze the bandana into a pot and then you filter it. And I'm just doing anything to get that water. And of course, 10 minutes later, I hit a stream, right? But, you know, <laughs> of course. But it's, I mean, it's that way. When you don't have water, it is huge. And that was my mistake on my first backpacking trip. We did not bring enough water. You're, you're spot on right. That is especially in Southern California, that is such a huge thing. So yeah, if, if you think you need half a liter or something, bring two, (laughs) you know, just, just, you know, triple whatever you think you need. People don't drink enough sitting around at home or at the office. They don't drink enough. So you put them outside for a five, six, 10 mile hike, carrying gear, you know, they're not going to have enough water. 
It's just not natural for people to carry three liters of water with them. Right. Right. And if you're doing some serious elevation, so if I were going, say, on a, let's say, seven miles in this, well, the Sierra is special. There's a lot of water you can stop and filter. But if if I were going seven miles without water over elevation, I'd have a minimum of three liters in my back. Oh, man. Yeah. See, people and just don't. Heavy. Yeah, that's heavy. And people don't expect to drink that much. When they look at it in the morning, they go, oh, I'll never finish that. And then they're by two o'clock. They're like, I'm not going to make it. I think I drank all my water. <laughs> yep. yep. I loved in the in the story, like each lake was like a mini mart filling up and getting their water refreshment. Like, you know, it was, it was for Gil to get there and make sure Sid had his filter out and just go. Right. Well, and there, there was Gil's mistake again, right? He bought a filter, but then he left it at home. Right. Yeah. Well, cause, cause that's what you don't want. You know, you, you right. bring the bad food, but don't bring the filter. Okay. Now has that technology been a big change from early on the filtering technology? Oh yes. Yeah. When you were asking about that, I forgot about water filters. Well, I mean, if you go back far enough to maybe the 60s and 70s, you did not need a filter at all. There were there was no Girardia to speak of. You could drink out of the streams. All all the old timers talk about that. Yeah, you touched it on but, in the book. Sid talks right. about it. Yeah. But now there's this parasite, Girardia, that's gotten into the rivers and so forth. And you have to be careful because if you get Girardia, you're gonna you're gonna get very sick, and you know you you get terrible diarrhea, and and you're really gonna need some help. So you want to filter your water, or at least make sure it's it's clean. And in the old days, back in the '80s and '90s, that meant a big heavy pump, right? Katadyne came out with this. I, I think it was two pound pump that you had to push and squeeze. And they got lighter over time, but it was only recently, it was only around 2016 where they came out with these squeeze filters. So I think the Sawyer was one of the the first ones. And so you see in the book, the transition, because I I set the book in 2016. So Gil and Sid have this old pump and, and they're struggling with it. And they run into a couple of other hikers like like Kitty, who's filtering with the squeeze filter. And Gil is looking at that like, that looks so much easier. And now, now they've gone past the squeeze to gravity filters, which are, they're based on the technology used for dialysis, where, you know, you simply hang your water in a bag and gravity just pushes it down through these little micro channels and the water comes out pure. So it, it's the most wonderful thing. I've just got an extra water bag now. I hang it in a tree and I just sit for five or 10 minutes while it filters through the, these micro channels and I've got <laughs> all the water I need for the day and I don't have to sit and pump and sweat and, you know, do all the work that I, I used to have to do. So I, I I love the these improvements in technology. These the this the water filters have been a huge thing actually. Right. Okay, two questions. Where did the bug come from? And then isn't it interesting that you someone takes something as the technology fire dialysis and goes, "Hey, 
let's use that for hiking or, or they're still kind of evolving. It's not dead yet. Like they're constantly pushing technology and hiking. Well, I think a lot of engineers and a lot of these folks are backpackers. So I'm sure some biomedical engineer who saw these dialysis bags said to themselves, hey, I wonder if this would filter out, you know, bacteria and stuff, you know, in the wilderness. This would be much easier than a pump. So I, I think it's folks like that just try something, right? You know, uh, the guy whose who's tent I bought, Durston, he's a biologist, but he just started playing around with tents. You know, it's... It's kind of interesting, but people take these things from their, their daily lives out into the wilderness. I mean, those gravity bags, they sure do look like the, the bags you use with an IV at the hospital. So right. I, I, and, and the fabric, the DCF fabric from the America's Cup sales. I think people just cannibalize all these different materials for, for the backcountry. So it, it's kind of natural. The, the parasite gerardia, I don't know the origin of that, but I do know how it's spread. Um, it's just, it's spread through defecation. Okay. You know, people who are carriers of it, if they, so it's, it's important that when you poo out in the wilderness, you do it far enough away from water that you're not contaminating it, right. at least at least 200 feet and that you bury it properly. And this, this is a problem. I've, I've seen a lot of beginners who do not properly bury their poo. And it's, it's very unfortunate. Um, but I, I've, I've come across unburied poo in the wilderness many times. And it, it's very troubling that people can't be bothered to take a shovel and just dig a six inch hole and, and cover it up. Um, but it's exactly this. Somebody doesn't bury it or does it too close to water, and they're a carrier, because you can be an asymptomatic carrier of Gerardia, and then it washes into the water source and breeds. Uh, I think cows can also carry it. So if you're, you know, some of the lower areas, like golden trout wilderness, have a lot of cows grazing, and I think they, they can spread it too. But basically, unsanitary practices near water sources or, you know, somebody doesn't wipe their hands, clean their hands well and then goes and washes them in the river. Right. This, any of this stuff can transmit it. I love that you touched on that. And it's Gil's experience in the book of that whole process. And then the, the white, what is it called? The Sierra white flower or the what was, yep. yeah, you know, and People don't, another one of those things, they don't understand if you go out for a day or two, you're going to be using the outdoor bathroom. Like there's a process. There's not porta potties along the way. And that's, that's something I, I really wanted in the book. I wanted people reading it to be aware of that. And I started out very cavalier. Gil really doesn't care at the beginning. He doesn't mm -hmm. think much about it. But then when he starts seeing that California white flower, you know, people who have, it's very unfortunate, have just discarded toilet tissue in the woods. Um, they don't even bury it sometimes, you know, and you see it and it doesn't break down quickly. And it really starts to bother Gil. And later he meets the ranger who talks about that. And she does what I do now. She has a, a backcountry bidet, which is, just a little tiny squirt nozzle that fits in a, a water bottle. 
and you just squeeze it. It gets a good stream of water going and you don't even need paper. You don't even need to bring paper. You can just wash off with this thing. And it's, it's really revolutionary because paper first, you got to really bury paper well, or nowadays they require you to pack out your soiled tissue, which is, I mean, you, who wants to do that? Right. right? So, you know, it's, it's liberating not to have to deal with tissue at all. So I, for anybody listening, you know, who's backpacker or thinking about it, check out backcountry bidets. It's, it's another improvement in technology that, you know, you can use, but again, like you say, try it first. (laughs) That's true. Make sure you know how to use it. (laughs) That's true. The backpack, the shoes and the bidet, make sure you test them out. Not yeah, at yeah. REI. Take them home first. Don't. We're getting pretty graphic here, Matt. But, but you know what, though? But in, And that's the part of the book. You know, I kept wondering how long they were going to make the trip for. You know, there's, I don't want to give it away. But in 28 days, you experience a lot. You are a different person after that trip, as both men are in the book and the people they meet along the way. Was that a lot? Like in your first trip, were you sitting there walking those days going, Am I gonna? Am I going to finish this? Oh yes, oh yes. On that first through hike of the John Muir Trail, um, I really struggled in a few places. Uh, the place where, well, I don't want to give away anything. In the yeah, book, yeah. So just give me your experience. Like, when, did it doubt creep in just for you or the people you were with? Well, it it wasn't doubt so much as altitude sickness. When I was up around Selden Pass, I got really, really sick. And I spent a night up at Sally Keys Lake, and I I could not breathe, and I was having my doubts. And, you know, I said to my partner, I think when we get down to Muir Trail Ranch, we should get off trail. I'm having issues. And I got down to Muir Trail Ranch, and I was fine. And I took a day, we, we stayed a day there, and I was, let's go on, let's keep going. So I, I did want to get off trail at that point. And at Forrester Pass, I was suffering again from altitude, and we did get snow. Uh, the snowstorm on Forrester is real. That, that happened to my wife and I. Uh, we had lightning and snow and all that. And again, there was that doubt, right? You're climbing into lightning and snow and all this. And there were moments in that climb where I was, maybe we should turn back. Maybe we should cut it short here, you know, but we pressed on, we got over and my wife and I finished. So yeah, there, there were definitely times. I think going up Mather Pass, that's another 12,000. I just, that dragged on and on and on, (laughs) you know, there, there are times where you're just, you know, you're, you're just like, why am I doing this? And then you get to the top and you're like, Oh my God, this is spectacular. And you want to keep going. I am. You must've experienced your your section hikes. Absolutely. Where, how, how much photography have you, documented on those trips from your early times in the eighties through now to your last trip. I think you just, when we, we talked earlier, you were doing something on Catalina. Like are you always bringing out a camera and, and documenting those trips and that experiences. I, I am now. And that's a funny question, Matt. Um, in the eighties, 
Very, very much so. I, I had an old Minolta that I took with me backpacking, uh, 35 millimeter, and I took it everywhere and I took pictures of everything. So I've got old photos of me up on the diving board, you know, that little nose of half dome and up at Yosemite Point and, you know, just all these places I went, I had photographs. And then sometime in the 90s, I decided I was being distracted by photography. I, I sort of realized I'm spending more time now looking for a good photo than I am just enjoying the wilderness. And so I left the camera at home. I stopped carrying the camera for probably a year or two. I did not bring a camera with me anywhere. I was just, no, I, I just want to be completely present and not looking for that scene and that snapshot. But when digital cameras came out and when they got light mm -hmm. is when I went back to carrying a camera. And so in 2016, I had a small digital with me and I took some photos. Joey took a lot more. Joey's a real photographer and he took quite a few pictures. So a lot of the photos I have from 2016 were, were thanks to him. But I made a mistake in 2016. My camera was in my pack. And so when I wanted to take a picture, uh, I had to stop. I had to put my pack down. I had to pull out my camera. And so there were a lot of places where I was on the edge. And I'm like, yeah, it's nice, but I don't want to take my pack off. Now I have my camera on a little shoulder strap, right? I've, I've found a nice shoulder strap. And by the way, here's, here's a place where someone could make a ton of money is designing <laughs> a really, really adaptable shoulder strap for backpacking cameras. Because if you go to Google these things, there are some, uh, but there aren't a lot of good choices for something that attaches to a generic backpack that'll hold the camera. But I've, I've managed to find one and I use it now so that if I see something, I can just unzip this little pouch, pull out my camera take my shot and go on. You don't want a neck strap while, while backpacking. No, no, it's, no, not at all. It's going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, You won't make it out of the park before that thing hangs around your neck. I think yeah. that's always the biggest challenge with photography. It's like, you got to put your camera away and then you sit there and decide, okay, is this worth every mile and a half? Set the pack down, dig in and get it. But if you can have it right near you, either on your chest or at your waist and you can get to it, then you have no excuse to at least capture your experience. Well, and the animals, right? Like if you see a bear or something, you want to be able to pull the camera out quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why I don't use the iPhone. I have an iPhone um, but the zoom lens isn't good enough for, for wildlife. Yeah, so no. that's, that's why I like the 200 on the, the Sony, because if, if there's a bear or a bird, I can get most of it with that 200 lens. Now, I'd like a 400, but you know, I, I'm not going to carry it. Yeah. You need a Sherpa if you're going to start to do that or the mule again. Yeah. Do, um, do you bring solar panels with you to charge any of your technology? I did in 2016, and I don't anymore. Uh, now those little battery packs have gotten so 
so good in terms of electron density or, or charge density that you can carry about a half pound pack, a charging pack, charge it up and you'll have enough energy to recharge your batteries several times. And then, you know, where you resupply, there's usually a place to plug those in. So that's by weight, it's better than the solar panels. But if I'm going very, very remote, and I know I'm not going to be at a place where I can plug in and resupply, uh, then yes, there's a lightweight solar panel I can bring. But the problem with solar panels, most people think you can just put it on your back and charge while you walk. And in practice, it doesn't work very well. You really have to get those solar panels directly in the sun to get a good charge. And so if you're going to rely on solar panels, you almost need to schedule your hike around charging. So you need to be in camp at three or four o'clock to get the sun. Or maybe at noon, you take an hour siesta and you put your solar panel out. But you've you've got to kind of time it. So if you're getting into camp late and getting up early, solar panels aren't going to work for you. Yeah, or if you're hiking Washington where there's really no sun, you know. Right, so, yeah. That doesn't do you any good. Yeah, it, I mean when when I when I had a solar panel in 2016, you know, Joey was kind of laughing at me because <laughs> I would set it up at four o'clock to get the sun, the sun would move, and I'd go running and move my solar panel, and every half hour I'd be moving it. But I mean, it worked. So you know, now now I just bring a battery pack, make it work. What is the best trail you've been on where? It's not John Muir. Is there anything in Oregon or Washington that you've you've done and you're like, oh, that was well worth the trip? Oh, sure. Um, it's actually, so for me, it's the Sierra. I love the Sierra. But there was a trip I took one year where I started out from Rhodes End and I went uh, sort of a reverse, above, I think it was Bubs Creek, I went up Bubs Creek and then I went up a trail called the Sphinx and over Colby Pass and down to Kern Canyon and out, uh, out, out Whitney actually that year. Okay. But it was all off major routes and it was fantastic. I just, there, there's so many beautiful things on that route. Uh, Colby Pass, you go by a place called Whaleback and some giant men- meadows, is absolutely stunning. And then from Colby Pass, you drop down into the Kern Canyon, and there's a natural hot springs there. There's a little tiny two-person hot springs you can sit in in this canyon that's it's the longest natural north-south canyon, I think, in the world, certainly in North America. And you've got these 2,000-foot walls that are almost vertical on both sides. You've got this giant Kern River going down the canyon. And here's this little hot tub that somebody's (laughs) built, which is next to the river in the bottom of this canyon with these incredible stars at night. And, I mean, it's piping hot water. It's just fantastic to be out there. So, I mean, that's, that's quite the experience. 
And, you know, then we hiked out over Whitney, which is pretty typical. You know, you're back on the Muir Trail at that point. Right. But any trail you take that is sort of off the beaten path, and you can just buy these maps of the Sierra or other places, and you just connect your own route. You're not going to see a lot of people. You're going to have a real wilderness experience. Mm -hmm. And it is gorgeous. It is really, really nice to do some of that stuff. So, I mean, you you don't have to follow my trail. Just and, and people listening, get a map, look at these places. You know, you can get the permits much more easily than these popular routes. Sure. Just go, you know, fantastic places out there. I loved in the book, every time the group would come up to a hot springs, it was like club med for them. Like, Oh, we get to get into some water and it's warm. Like, Yahoo. Like it was their best moments. Yeah. I, I love natural hot springs. That's, I mean, when I was leading at the Berkeley, the Berkeley hiking club, they used to call me hot springs, Ethan. They were, they said, do you ever do trips that don't go to hot springs? And it was pretty rare. And I just, there's something about soaking in hot water at night and looking up at the stars. That's just, just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, if someone's going to give you a nickname, that's not a bad one to have. (laughs) it it, it was nice i mean that that club was crazy they they built hot tubs in the wilderness there there was one time we went to point rays and we were down at coast camp and they they dug out a big hole in the beach and built a hot spring i mean they built a hot tub on the beach where somebody had brought in a big tank of propane and a, a heat exchanger. And we just sat there on the beach enjoying hot water. I mean, you know, crazy stuff, but we were young. But you touched on it in the book. And just right now, like that's one thing I think people forget hiking is at night, the stars come out. I mean, you get all that ambient light from the cities go away. They're not touching it. And you look up at night and you realize, boy, there's a lot of holes up there. That's not a finished job. It's beautiful. Yeah, we we call backpacking a ten thousand star hotel. Huh. It's it's unbelievable, and you know, and with the photography thing, you you want to have before you go if you've got a good camera, you want to have set up, you know, saved some preset where you've got that night photography preset all all dialed in. So when you get out there and you've got the Milky Way and you've got no right. moon and and you know that perfect mountain thing you you know how to photograph it you're not trying to figure it out out there but yeah i mean the starscapes are unbelievable and you just never get a clearer sky than that that's you know that that was a big thing in the book on gill's first day he's miserable everything's awful and you know he's got to go out and relieve himself and he turns and looks up at the stars and there's that pause of wow you know that right. first inkling of there is something to this you know yeah that is special it really is now That's incredible you you photography is in your blood your mother is a photographer correct 
Yeah, she's she's a professional photographer. If, if you want to see her stuff, just Google uh, Fran Galogli. You know, I, I think you'll have the spelling of my name. Yeah, so I will. I will. Fran Galogli Photography, and you'll see she's she's a commercial photographer, and and she's she's been in shows and stuff. So she's she's pretty amazing. So did you pick up a little bit of her photography or lean on it when you were going out hiking? Like, mom, what 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 idea do I need here? No. Uh, so my mother got into professional photography after I had turned 18, went on to college and so forth. So I've been pretty much on my own with photography. Okay. And and I'm not, I used to develop and do black and white and all that. Didn't stuff. we all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere. I don't have the eye my mother has. And, and I also don't have the equipment she's got. <laughs> So when I'm looking at new equipment, I'll often call her up, you know, I'll, I'll ask her, oh, do I want a full size sensor or crop sensor? You know, I'll, I'll ask her that kind of technical question. And, she, you know, she'll, she's, she's, she knows it all for that right. stuff. She says, no wet plates. Are you silly? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. What is that? <laughs> Get, taking your glass out there and you, you know, you're eight by oh. 10. Yeah. Full on glass plate negatives. Yeah. Like like Ensel Adams. Oh, way, way back in the day. Matthew Brady and those were that's what those guys were doing back yep. then. Yeah, Solomons did that. Yeah. Imagine, imagine going out for 30, 40 days and having to carry all those boxes of glass plate negatives on your mule. And you know, no way. I wouldn't do it. Weight of them. He he went up Mount Ritter, which is a, a semi-technical climb. You know, he scrambled up Mount Ritter carrying a a I think a four by five box. No, it's a, an eight by it was eight, eight by, by ten. ten box camera and the glass plate negatives and and exposed them up there while risking his life on on this peak. You know, it's 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 amazing what what they went through back then. What you know how they do those Civil War reenactments and everybody dresses up. You're the South. I'm the North. Would there ever be like, hey, let's try to dress like Solomon or Brown and go out for a day and just hike like these guys did in wool pants and leather boots and a hat and they probably had button shirt none of those guys were in t-shirts they probably had collared shirts all buttoned up a pocket watch i mean it was i can't imagine what it was like back then to be uh, i i wouldn't do it but remember <laughs> the the anniversary of lewis and clark there there were those two guys who who basically did it with all the primitive equipment and, and oh. reenacted their their journey. So yeah, it, it, it's been done. I don't know if it's been done in the Sierra. <laughs> I, I, I think what would be most fun if you were doing that is if you came across people to act the part, right? Yeah, act right. Like you've been out there all these years since the 1800s. You know? <laughs> I, I, I used to fantasize when, when I was doing a couple of years back, um, I, I used to fantasize about what just just after Biden's election, walking into one of these, you know, like VVR or something, because you get the big beard. You oh, yeah. 
crazy after a month walking in and, and just going, is Trump still in office? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or like, worse, like, like been how's Bill Clinton years. doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Last Bill I heard, Clinton. there was a young Arkansas governor. <laughs> right. <laughs> what happened to Nixon? <laughs> yeah. She's got a library now. Good golly. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. If you could take people on one hike, what would it be? I think... You know, if they're if they're middle level beginners, I'd probably take them on the High Sierra Trail. Okay, High Sierra Trail to me is a Sierra sampler. It's you can do it in ten days, so most people who've got a traditional week off could could handle it. It crosses the Sierra uh, east uh, west to east. Okay. And it starts out gentle enough that a beginner could kind of get their legs. And then you get up there into the Alpen Glow and the lakes and all that. I, I think it's a perfect trip for somebody who's sort of an advanced beginner who wants to see the Sierra and experience all that. Plus, on your first night up at Bear Paw, there's a high Sierra camp and they sell beer and, and cookies and brownies <laughs> and this kind of thing. And it, it gives you enough of an out. If if you get up to Bear Paw and you decide this isn't for me, you you could turn back and and it wouldn't be too hard to get back out. So that that would be kind of my my one week beginner backpacking trip. If if I just had a weekend, it would be something out of Yosemite. Okay, what do you have still left on your bucket list you want to try to get on? How, how much time do we have? <laughs> well, you've got a meeting, so it's up. To, <laughs> but okay, let's um, say because you know, at some point, it's age, right? You can you, you, at some like you cannot keep going at like eighty years old and doing thirty day hikes. So yes, you can. Yes, you can. I've been passed by people in their eighties. Really? Guy, God love him. Guy, I think in his eighties or nineties who did the AT. Um, or triple ground, I think. No, you you can still keep going as long as the warranty holds out. As long as the that's body right. Well, yeah, got to get rotated. Um, there, there's a bunch of hikes though that I want to do. I want to go to this thing called the GR10 in Europe, and I was going to do that a couple of years ago, and then this pandemic hit, and I couldn't go to Europe. But that's across the Pyrenees Mountains in the south of France from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. And that's a month and a half, maybe a month, month and a half. Wow, I, I even that's big. That. Yeah. And, and you're going hut to hut. So there are people who are cooking for you and, you know, it's, it, it's almost perfect, you know? So that's something I want to do. I, I'm in 2023, I'm planning to do the PCT. Okay. See, it rhymes nicely. <laughs> I, I've never done that long of a hike. So that's, I think, 2,600 miles from Mexico to, to Canada. And I'm going to need about five months, six months to do that. So in 2023, I'm blocking off the time to go and walk the PCT. And maybe the year after, I'll do the AT. I've got another book in my head about the AT, the Appalachian Trail. And of course, I'm not going to write it until I walk it. Yeah, and there's the Camino, you know, the the El Camino Santiago. I want to go walk, and I mean, the list goes on and on. Do do you go out almost every week, just on a little hike here and there, or is it 
always an adventure hike for you? So I prefer to hit the big mountains. I prefer to hit the Sierra. And lately I've been wrapped up in a number of things that haven't let me get out as much as I want to. Um, But maybe starting this spring, this summer, I'm planning to get back up into the Sierra more often, do, do a bunch more weekend hikes. And of course, every summer I get up there. Right. Now, how was that Catalina one, that little trip you did at Catalina? So I didn't end up going. Oh, you didn't make it. That, well, that was the week of the tsunami. There was that uh, volcano explosion. That was that week? Yes, there was a tsunami and there were all kinds of warnings. And the last thing I wanted to do was jump on a ferry boat <laughs> and get in the water. You know, So we, we canceled that. But that's a good novel right there. It's the perfect storm, but through a... Catalina. I want to live to write my books. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, good. At least you didn't get caught up in a major storm like that. Cause that was pretty amazing for that, for that little poor little Island. Well, and yeah, that's true. And that's, that's another thing people don't think about. You, you know, there's sometimes you have to cancel a trip. I I've, I've heard of people, even sometimes commercial outfitters, taking people into storms and snow and needing search and rescue to come out and get them because they just, they didn't heed the weather or the warning. So sometimes, even though you've got these great plans, nature says otherwise. And and the best thing to do is say no or delay, you know, don't, don't go walking into a disaster because you're creating a, a risk for you and for the person who has to come after you. Right. So five years, you knock out the book, you get it done. How satisfying was that? You know, it's sad when you finish a book. It's it's actually, there's that moment of joy, like, wow, I've done this. And then what am I going to do now? Right. So <laughs> I just finished the trail now where? <laughs> yeah, no, there, that in-between projects thing is is kind of a strange, strange limbo. I've got a couple of other books in my head, but I've been focusing a lot on marketing, and that's much more of a job than I, I thought. You know, the publishers only take you so far. Mm-hmm. You've got to do quite a bit of this on your own. And, I mean, the trail's been doing great. We just got a, a reader view. Uh, we just won an award from reader views for best, fiction novel um in in their their thing but it's it's a lot of work to get into all those things to to get it in the contests to get people aware of it so i'm spending this year on marketing and then next year i'm going to go back into into writing again how have the reviews been with either critics or like do you get the la times new york times like how the response has been I would love to be in the LA times and New York times. It hasn't happened yet. I, I keep hoping I keep reading the pages of, okay. of those. Um, but we've had some excellent reviews. Uh, we had a very strong Kirkus review that blew me away. I, I don't know if you read anything, any Kirkus reviews, but they have a reputation for being some of the most critical reviews. I mean, they'll, they'll tell you, they'll tear you a new one. They're they're When we sent it out to Kirkus, I was nervous. And when <laughs> it came back as just overwhelmingly positive from them, I'm like, Whoa, I've got something here, you know? 
that that was amazing. Uh, Midwest book reviews was just they were gushing, you know, fantastic, wonderful, uh, you know, a must read. They, they, I think they said unreservedly recommended. So I, I've gotten some really fantastic professional reviews and the reviews up on Amazon and, and Goodreads and stuff like this have been overwhelmingly good. You know, I, 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 I think listeners can just go and read them themselves but the the reviews on the book have been fantastic. That's good. That's good. It's well deserved. It's a it's a beautiful book. It's a great read. Um, the gentleman was it Jake? Who's who does the narrating? Yeah, Jake Hunsbusher. Yeah. He was a fantastic narrator. Yeah, beautiful. Well, it it's a it's not a that it's a tough job to do that, but he did it so well. He made it very easy. He 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 knocked it out of the park real well. Um, I'm glad we were able to connect and I was able to read your book. Like so often, how many people do you run across that give you good advice on a read a book, right? You, sometimes you have friends, you just don't trust their taste, like not a chance in hell, but I've told everybody, um, that I've known, I've told my boy, all three of my boys, like, Hey, you guys have earbuds, put this damn thing on, listen to it. It's a great story, right? Take a, take a listen. So well done. Well done. I, I can't. Really I, I can't wait for the next ones. You gotta let me know. <laughs> Five more years. <laughs> so, are, you, are you not gonna let your hair? You gonna hair grow out and the beard and the whole thing? So when you finish the book, it's kind of that five-year growth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I do on trail. It, right. It, it does. It does get that way. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've got one in my head about the AT, but I've got to walk it. I've got to start thinking about it. And then of course, write it, you know, it, it takes, it takes time. Is there anything you've learned from this book and that five-year process you're going to take to the next book to make your either process easier or you're going to elaborate on? Well, it's like anything else. I mean, I think I'd never written dialogue before this book. I'd never written scenery and descriptions. And so I, I guess I'm a better writer now, and maybe that that next novel will only take me three and a half years. You know, maybe maybe it'll be. I mean, I hope maybe it'll be a little bit better, a little bit easier. We'll see. I, I've learned a lot about writing uh, from this project, and I'll probably learn a lot more from the next one. All right. Well. The, uh, I'm going to say you're author of two books, right? Don't shortchange yourself on that chemistry book. Yes, technically right. that's true. Yeah, right. So No, no, the chemistry book is great. I, I just, you know, I, <laughs> I just wouldn't recommend it to your <laughs> casual reader. No, no, I am recommend, I'm linking them both. <laughs> chemistry, the, the way you fall asleep, and the trail, the way you get through the day. There you go. There you go. Ethan, I can't thank you enough for your time. You've been a great guest. You've got a you've you've got a great book. Uh, I loved I loved reading it, and I'm, I'm glad we got to meet. And maybe we'll uh, cross each other on a path sometime. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate you having me on your show. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Ethan Globley. I will leave a link to his book in the show notes. Please leave a review if you enjoyed what you heard. And remember, you can always follow the podcast on Instagram. You can find all of our past shows on the website, justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.